0: welcome to All Tomorrow. I'm
1: Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. And like most of you, we're at home and we're broadcasting from our dining rooms. Like most of you also, we're wondering what kind of world awaits us. Countries are starting to transition out of confinement. People are beginning to make their way back to the streets, to jobs, to parks, to playgrounds, to public spaces. But we all know something very fundamental has changed. And we wonder about our health and the health of our loved ones. We wonder about the sharp economic downturn, but it's time to start thinking also about what trade and politics are going to look like, about climate and terrorism, about failing states that are going to fail, about borders that are closed and what that means for migrants, about which leadership will falter and which leadership will thrive.
0: And Peter, there's a question high on the minds of most of us and most world leaders, which is what will happen in November's U.S. elections. We're once again struck by the absence of the U.S. as captain of the ship and the rising influence of countries like China and Russia and what the world might look like without the United States is exactly the subject of our guest's recent book. Richard Haas is president of the Council on Foreign Relations, and his book, The World, A Brief Introduction, has a perfect title for these times.
1: So, Mooney, what's the world going to look like? Well, in my opinion, it is not going to be a pretty sight. The notion of a globalized world that all becomes more prosperous through trade and shared interests is just, I don't think, any longer in the cards. The large-scale mistrust of China means that supply chains and offshoring are going to recede, and far more nationalist economic policies are going to become commonplace If you look, you already can see how democracies are becoming more inward-looking and becoming far more tolerant of authoritarian tendencies. And stagnation is setting in. The Economist did a cover story that really struck me a few weeks ago, and they called a sluggish, stagnant, what they called a 90% economy. I mean, I just think things are looking pretty down. And as I said this, I, I didn't even realize I was such a pessimist.
0: I think you should take a walk and enjoy the nice spring weather or maybe get some more sleep. And uh, don't look at the cover for the most recent economist, which is goodbye globalization. However, I actually think that out of this disaster comes a greater realization and understanding that many of our problems need to be solved together. So if COVID has taught us anything, and and I hope it's taught us something, is how interconnected we are. And the amount of data shared by scientists around the world on any given day is really, really inspiring. And sure, maybe the dream of a globalized market recedes for a bit But it is replaced by deepening ties with regional investment blocks in Africa and Latin America trying to look for common solutions as offshoring is replaced by nearshoring. And countries clearly will have to, they are absolutely obliged to attack the profound inequality in their societies. And there is a slowly growing realization that technology needs to start working for the public and not the other way around. So actually, I'm Hopeful today, hopeful for a better world.
1: I don't know, Mooney. I I I just I'm I'm not convinced. I I think it's great that there's so much texting going on between doctors, but the COVID crisis is showing us that the issues facing our global economy, you know, are going to need a coordinated response. And the reality is that global responses are just far from collective. You know, in the U.S. and some Latin American countries, we've seen. This dispute between federal and state, even between city and state, and uh, city leaders try to find different solutions and take different measures than their national governments. The EU has left European countries basically to like all fend for themselves in designing their own virus responses, economic recoveries, and reopenings. Everybody's like on this seems to be on their own. Global institutions seem to lose credibility, and even worse, we're seeing signs. That this public health is going to be used to, you know, justify some type of greater control, which is going to lead countries to this creeping authoritarianism that we're seeing and put democratic gains at risk, you know, especially, and I'm especially worried about that in developing countries.
0: Yeah, you know what I am worried about, though, is that within this like, very gloomy context, the critical issues that have been or can be brushed under the rug, hot topics like human rights, environment, press freedom, no one's thinking about this, women's right, access to water, religious freedom, they become backstories, and no one has time for that anymore. And I do think these issues disappear because, in part, great part, because the U.S. is walking away from the global table precisely at a time when the main challenges of the world require some consistent leadership. And that is not to say that the U.S. is the only nation that matters. Of course not. But it would be naive to ignore how much of the waning influence of this country is reshaping the global power structure entirely.
1: Totally, totally agree. The world without U.S. leadership, for all the critics and for all the sort of envy, you know, just really looks like a much far more uncertain world. And if you look what already happened As the U.S. goes from role model to laughing stock, it's amazing. I mean, I I was shocked to read this Irish Times op-ed talking about how the world now pitied the United States. And, you know, indeed, it's this U.S. which was seen always as the stalwart ally. It's become increasingly the unreliable partner for security, for trade, for climate change, foreign powers and illegal actors. You can see them already taking advantage of this vacuum. And to further erode U.S. interests, to spread fake news, to prey on existing divisions, Russia and China are filling the blanks of geopolitical influence and investing in developing regions. Europe, sure, it's leading the way on climate change and digital privacy. And Iran, in a much more, uh, in a much stronger way, Australia and India are vying for seats at the grown-up table. And you know, I, Latin America and African countries are welcoming Chinese leaders as if they were no longer a relevant U.S. leadership to welcome. This is not all about sort of, it's great that other powers are taking greater responsibility, but what I find so troubling is the total vacuum of U.S. presence that's happening on the on the global stage right now.
0: So as we walk out our doors, what kind of world will we find? And this is a great time to welcome Richard Haas for some insight. Richard is a veteran diplomat, president of the Council on Foreign Relations, an author and global policy expert, During his career, he served as a key U.S. player in Northern Ireland, Afghanistan, South Asia, and other regions, and he's one of America's truly global voices, a voice for the times. Haas is the author and editor of 14 books on American foreign policy, including his most recent publication, The World, A Brief Introduction. Richard Haas, welcome to Altamar. It is a real pleasure to have you with us again.
2: Thank you, Mooney. It's good to be back.
0: And it's uh, congratulations on your new book, The World A Brief Introduction. We have to ask, though, as we're podcasting from our homes, what is it like to launch a book exactly during confinement, without tours, without lectures, without signings? It must be uh, creative times.
2: (laughs) Creative is a euphemism for all sorts of things. Uh, Look, there's no playbook for this. We're making it up as we go along. The good news is there's no jet lag. There's no lines at airports. No airplane food. I don't have to travel across the country, say, to do an hour meeting in California. I could just sit here and do an hour uh, meeting with people in California. That's the good news. The bad news is you miss all the human part of this, or, and not all of it. We're getting better at doing this. I don't know about you. I'm getting more comfortable with it, but it's not the same. Obviously, also, it's you know, uh, independent bookstores, for the most part, can't operate. So I think it's tough on authors in that. On the other side, though, I think people are reading a little bit more. And for better or worse, there's an obvious connection between the pandemic and what I'm writing about in this book. It's it's not simply that I've got a chapter on global health and talk about pandemics. But if there was ever a moment where people are getting up in the morning and say, the world matters, I need wow. to know more about it, this is this is that moment. So it's uh like like everything else in life, it's 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 a mixed bag, but uh Whatever the upside, trust me, I would trade it all in in a New York minute if we could go back to something like the life we used to have.
0: Of course. And um, last time you were on Altomar, we talked about your last book, which is published in 2017, called A World in Disarray. Now, there's another (laughs) euphemism. Um, (laughs) What has changed since its publication that motivated you to write another? So before COVID, what really motivated you to keep going with this subject and take it further?
2: Well, the world was still in disarray three years or two years after I wrote the other book. So it wasn't to do a sequel to that. What led me to do this one is the world in disarray and some of my other books were essentially books written for people who I would say were inside the foreign policy conversation. They were already there. It might be people who read foreign affairs magazine, listened to shows, uh, podcasts like this one, people who care for whatever reason, cared about it. They're already there. What I decided though is I needed to write a book for people who were outside the conversation, who didn't realize why the world mattered, who didn't have the basis of knowledge so they could make informed decisions as citizens, be it about policy, who to vote for, uh, about careers, about investments, about businesses. And so I decided to write a very different kind of a book for a much broader, broader audience. And my goal was not to make them all international relations majors or make them all foreign service officers, more it was to take quote unquote normal people, students who might be computer majors or flute majors or English majors and get them up to speed. Because at the end of the day, we're all citizens, we're all living in this world and we've all gotta be better prepared for it.
1: Well, let's, let's, let's get into the debate a bit. And you, I think the book makes such an effective argument for international solutions to global problems. But, you know, as I look around that we navigate this coronavirus, it just looks like countries are moving in the opposite directions, looking for local solutions. And, you know, even the smallest towns are all diverging on how they do this. Uh, You know, I watched NBC News last night in New Mexico, seven miles away, two towns are doing this completely differently. So how do we resolve this conundrum or how do we square that circle? I mean, international solutions are needed, but the opposite's happening.
2: Well, I hope you're sitting down
1: because the answer
2: is we're probably not going to resolve it. Americans and others, like I understand why people like resolution and solution. But this this is going to be something which at best will manage. There's going to be very uneven responses, as you say, within countries, uh, for all I know, within states. And obviously, obviously across uh, industries, obviously across the, the world. Now, it's an irony here, and it's probably an irony wrapped in tragedy that here you have a quintessential global problem and the global response is woefully inadequate. It, in some ways, underscores that we didn't have in place adequate machinery. And just take the other day when the Europeans convened a meeting to get to pool resources, intellectual and financial, to come up with a vaccine. And the United States said, never mind, we're not going to we're going to we're not going to participate in that effort. What that does to me is not only says something about the United States, but it suggests that if, uh, hopefully, when something like a vaccine emerges, that's not going to solve the problem. There's going to be real questions of who pays for it, what is the sequence of availability, uh, who decides. Uh, so it's 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 going to be extraordinarily uh, complicated. But but it's frustrating to me, and because yeah, you know, I keep saying there's there's two lessons that everybody ought to take away, away from this experience. One is that because the world matters and it's going to come at you, isolationism is not a serious posture. You can't sustain it. My favorite image is of the ostrich putting his head in the sand on the beach and then the tide coming to wash it away. It just doesn't make sense. And the other is unilateralism doesn't make sense, that there's virtually nothing to deal with this or any other global crisis that we can do better by ourselves. So if nothing else, and it will be awfully expensive lessons, I'm hoping that people come away from this experience more open to the idea of being involved in the world and finding partners at the same time.
1: Before you came on, Muni and I were having that exact debate. And, and I have to confess, I just, you know, on the one hand, it seems like we're it, there's no doubt that the virus is convincing us that we're interdependent. But at the same time, the virus is convincing us that we should be less independent.
2: You may be exactly right. Because what's going to happen? One of the things that worries me is it's going to highlight we are interdependent, as you say. It's going to make the argument we should become more connected. But the initial reaction is going to be just the opposite. Everyone's going to say we got to look after ourselves. Uh, we've got to fix ourselves. So whether it's uh, attention or financial resources or hoarding of equipment or vaccines or what have you, I think what it's actually going to do is in some ways exacerbate some of the, the differences out there. And that that's quite possible. Uh, Did I just take the wrong side in your positive optimist, uh, pessimist debate?
1: (laughs) 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 But I want to go, I want to go back to something you mentioned recently about the U.S. not showing up to the European conference. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does seem like across the board on some of the issues that are global, whether it's climate change, you know, nuclear disarmament, et cetera, the United States just seems to be in retreat. And I guess one of the look in the crystal ball and I know it depends on the election, but, but, but it really goes beyond just politics. Is this retreat permanent and inevitable, or are we going to, we're going to, something going to matter here to change?
2: Look, it's certainly underway. It was underway long before COVID-19 became a household phrase. Elements of it were in the Obama administration. I think elements of it were to some extent beginning with the end of the cold war. People said, uh, we now have earned the right to put our feet up. I think after the Iraq and Afghanistan and experiences after the 2008 financial crisis, to paraphrase uh, George McGovern, the the desire to come home America had become pretty widespread. I think Donald Trump is both an accelerant of that tendency, but also as a reflection of it. And what I think is that therefore suggests is regardless, or as they like to say in Washington, irregardless, of the uh, effect of the uh, the 2020 election. Whoever is president, whether it's Donald Trump or Joe Biden, is going to inherit a country where a large chunk of the people, may not be a majority, but it may be a large chunk, is going to say, hey, we don't have the luxury of being involved in the world right now. We've got to focus on getting Americans back to work. We've got to focus on dealing with this disease, which is still lingering. And the last thing we need to do is, is be running around the world. So I, I think these pressures, even if you, you know, all the three of us would say that's probably the wrong lesson to derive from this, or it's certainly the wrong lesson to derive from this. I still think it's going to be something It's going to place limits on what the new president could do, even if he wanted to have the United States uh, play a much larger role in the world.
1: Okay. But let's, let's take that a step further now and let's pretend he does want to take the step, play, have the United States. What, how should that playing look like? How should that building of a new, new world look like? And, you know, do we shore up the institutions we have, or do we need new institutions that deal with the big issues of the world, migration, surveillance, technology, public health, environment? How do we fix that? I'd say two things.
2: We're going to have a world where you're going to have the, old agenda of problems. Great power jockeying. We'll still have issues, to say the least, with Russia, with China. We're going to have the challenges from North Korea, Iran. So we're going to have the familiar old set of national security challenges, and we need to deal with those. At the same time, we're going to have the whole new national security agenda and all the issues you raised from climate change to how to restructure cyberspace to dealing with global health to dealing with migration. Uh, I would argue we've got to do both. Now, the good news, I would say, potentially good news, is that presidents enjoy considerable latitude when it comes to foreign policy, much more so than they enjoy when it comes to domestic policy. So there are a good many things we could and should do to deal with both sets of national security challenges. I would invest heavily in a a dialogue with China about the rules of the road for for our relationship and for China's emergence on the world stage. I would think, for example, to Russia, we've got to extend the existing arms control, uh, nuclear arms control regime. The last thing we need to do is introduce a new round of nuclear competition uh, top of things. But yes, we've got to figure out uh, new ways of dealing with climate change. And by the way, it goes way beyond Paris. It's not simply going back into the Paris Agreement. That's That would have minimal contribution in and of itself because the Paris trajectory is inadequate. So we really need to think of new and better ways. So in some cases, in It could mean shoring up existing institutions or modernizing them. It may mean creating new ones. Because in some ways, as you know, the process of strengthening an existing institution often runs into resistance. There's all sorts of vested interests as part of that institution. There could be those with veto. There could be voting situations. So in some cases, it may make more sense to say, hey, we're just going to create a new grouping to deal with this issue. We're going to bring together the actors who are uh, willing, able, like-minded, and so forth, bring them together. Now, it may not be everybody, may not solve the problem, but if we can get 60% or 80% of the relevant players in the room and they're prepared to do something, that is certainly better than than getting 100% of the players in the room and accomplishing nothing, if that would be the outcome.
0: Let's go back to China. If there's could be anything like winners and losers, is China becoming a success story in the COVID public health crisis? So they took an early hit and seemed to be the first to be overcoming it. What is the, is there a new role for China to play in the cold, the post-COVID world? Um, is it going to fill in the step, you know, that the shoes of the of the absent U.S. and can it? There's
2: a big debate going on about this, Mooney, amongst the China experts. My hunch is China is both a loser and a winner. It's a loser because of its mishandling of the virus. And a lot of people in the United States and Europe hold it accountable, hold it responsible. And it's still behaving badly. It's putting pressure, say, on Australia not to pursue a uh, an honest investigation of what happened. It's still not admitting uh, responsibility. Uh, it's the most recent reports, are tr- if they're true, and I have no reason to doubt that they are. They're uh, trying to steal intellectual property, in this case, uh, what companies in the biotech space are doing to produce a, a vaccine. So... No one should have any illusions about China. China is still not prepared to be uh, a responsible international citizen. China, China is much more conscious, shall we say, of the rights of sovereignty as they see them. Leave us alone to do what we want, and and uh, with the with the Uyghurs or with Hong Kong or what have you, rather than the obligations of sovereignty. So I think we've got a an ongoing problem with uh, China. Now the United States has made though the situation more difficult by picking fights with our allies, particularly in Asia Pacific with South Korea, which Jam, but also in, uh, in Europe. we've created an environment where there it's harder to create a, a front that could deal with China in a much more f- effective collective way. And we're, you know, we haven't crowned ourselves with glory here. Our inept response to the pandemic has made us look really uh, bad. So it's quite possible that neither the United States nor China will come out of this uh, in an enhanced position. And we'll move into a world where the distribution of power, the distribution of influence is even greater, which is a bad thing, because that suggests to me we're we're going to be even more in a world that I described in the Disarray book, where power is so decentralized, where... It's even harder to forge leadership and the world just doesn't self-organize. So I, I, my, my guess is we're, we're moving into a dangerous phase of international relations. Coming back to our previous conversation where we've got all the old problems, we've got a whole raft of new problems. And the United States uh, and other countries have not only pulled back, but are so preoccupied with their domestic situation that they don't have the calories or the bandwidth, so to speak, to, to act, much less lead. That's a bad, that's a, that's a potentially Speaking toxic combination. Speaking of domestic uh,
0: situations and in the, in the trade world, I was really struck by the um, op-ed by Robert Lighthizer, the United States trade representative, which was essentially an ode to protectionism. He declared the end of offshoring jobs in the U.S. to overseas. Um, he's been very adamant about re negotiating trade agreements that include investor protections for other countries and it comes and then the increased chatter of supply chains that will be rejuggled after COVID Is, is this a policy that's going to stick and then what, who are the losers and winners of that?
2: On balance. I think the answer to your question is more yes than no. Trade is one of the areas where there's considerable overlap between say the progressive wing of the democratic party and the Trump wing or now the Trump Republican uh, Party. Plus, I think the, the pandemic will accelerate this idea of supply chain diversification, much greater emphasis on national self-sufficiency, both production and stockpiling. Uh, already, we saw in various agreements like the U.S.-China agreement, what you might call a greater movement in the direction of, of managed trade, a move away from, from free trade. So I think the short answer is, is yes, we are moving in that direction. Now, the, the danger is, of course, you lose a lot of the advantages of free trade. You lose uh, cheaper uh, goods at times, you lose uh, greater efficiency, you lose some innovation. Export-oriented jobs may suffer when others do the same thing. If everybody is going to enter into a position of greater national self-sufficiency, uh, the capacity to export is obviously going to, uh, going to go down this could be inflationary. So I see lots of downsides. And I and I also think there's a strategic downside. Trade is one of the things that gives would be uh, disruptive countries pause before they do certain things because they ultimately make vulnerable economic arrangements that, that work to their interests. So I think there's strategic and economic downsides to a world of, of less trade and certainly less free trade. But if you're asking me to take out my 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 crack crystal ball, I would essentially say, yeah, I think we are. We were already moving in that direction. And I think the combination of the lessons, quote unquote, of this pandemic, the desire to reduce vulnerability to foreign supply chains, plus the need to get people at home back at work. I think, yes, in this country and around the world, we're going to see a a movement towards a much larger role in the economy for government and trade is going to become much more managed.
0: Well, as long as you have the crack crystal ball on your desk, I'm going to ask you about Europe. Um, it seems that the whole illusion of the EU has dissipated in recent months as European countries are faced to battling their own internal political and economic issues, their own health crises in a in a in quite a tribal way. What is the EU going to look like after we walk out in the world?
2: It's interesting. Several years ago, the big debate in Europe was how was between what was called the United Europe of States and the United States of Europe, was whether (laughs) Europe would become ever more integrated and Brussels would become ever more significant. Now it's the opposite debate. It's it's how much less integrated does Europe become? And we've already seen lots of political pressure against free movement of peoples, anti-immigration. We've seen Brexit. Just the other day, what I think is potentially the most, the biggest threat to the European project was this decision by the court in Germany essentially saying that the European Central Bank had no right to take certain policy stances because what they're doing was inconsistent with the principles by which Germany conducts its economic policy. That would basically mean national uh, institutions come before European ones. This is the most important country in Europe. So I actually think this is the potentially most dangerous moment for the European projects going back to when it began uh, in the aftermath of World War II. So rather than thinking, how do we advance it? I actually think if I were European, I would be saying, how do we build a floor? How do we build a floor under Europe? And then let's recalibrate in the aftermath of uh, of the, the pandemic about what a, a new era of the European lo- Union look like. Because it seems to me the old dynamic is, is spent and there's no longer sufficient consensus in Europe about what the future of Europe ought, ought to uh, look like. And that's going to be an awfully difficult conversation within and between and among countries. But I think we're there. So the real question is, how do you keep Europe intact at the same time you essentially have a major conversation about what the next era ought to look like?
1: As an Italian born born and raised in Rome, that was just one of the most depressing Listening to you was one of the most depressing one, one minutes I've heard in a long
2: time. We need to cheer
1: Peter up, please. Peter.
2: I'm sorry, but also, but by the way, Italy is at the core of this. Italy, to use an American expression, is in some ways too big to fail for Europe. It's not Greece or something, but Italy is failing, and it's brought to the fore this whole question of uh, resource transfers within Europe. What is the obligation of individual members to the whole? And then what conditions should countries like Italy be forced to accept in order to continue to expect to receive resource transfers? In some ways, akin to what the IMF would say, we're prepared to bail you out, but only if you do A, B, and C and stop doing X, Y, and Z. So this is a moment of truth uh, for Italy in its relationship with the EU and the EU in terms of its relationship with member states. Let me. Does that make you feel even yeah. worse? <laughs> 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 Sorry, I'm not trying to depress you. I am not going out of my way. It just sort of happens every time.
1: <laughs> Let's uh, move back to the book. And and I, I was struck by the title of your book because it, in a way it sounds a little bit like a textbook. And you've spoken a lot about education and you, just, and you began the interview talking about education. And what did children in America or children around the world need to learn that's different from what they're learning now in order to develop these global consciences that you that you talk about and and it, are, is any country doing this right well almost every developed country is doing it better than the United States
2: they have more in their curriculums in high schools and universities that is offered or certainly that's required than we have but the the problem is that you can graduate from virtually any high school in the United States and you can graduate from virtually any college or university in the United States and be fa- essentially what I call globally illiterate. That you will be, uh, you will not have even a cursory knowledge about the world that you're going to enter, and that will affect your life in, in fundamental ways. And just to be clear, most high schools don't offer it. Civics has got squeezed for all sorts of reasons, and most colleges or universities offer it but don't require it. So if you're clever, you can navigate your course requirements. And again. Uh, your one history course could be something about Polynesian you know folk dancing in the 14th century, <laughs> and that will be your sum total of a, of a, that's gonna really get me a lot of fan mail, but it's it's close enough to a reality that uh, I'll stand uh, stand by it. So I decided to write this book because of the contrast that on one hand, just think about it, if you go to college now or you're graduating high school, you're you were born right around the beginning of the century. And given life expectancy, you will have a 21st century life. And I'm struck by how much the 21st century, whether it's climate change, pandemics, everything we're talking about, cyberspace, what what have you, terrorism, will affect that person's life. Yet how little that person knows about it, how unprepared they are for it, both as an individual but also as a citizen. How do they know who to vote for? How do they know what what positions or people to support? How do they know what careers to commit to? How do they know what investments to make? What businesses to to join? So I decided to basically write a book, a single book, just over 300 pages that in one place wouldn't give you everything you need to know, but not everybody needs to become a foreign service officer or or professor of international relations. But to give you the foundation, to give you enough so you could make sense of the headlines, make sense of the news, make, be, have a better filter. So when a candidate says you need this or you don't need that, you can you can be properly skeptical and you can challenge that candidate. So that was the purpose of this book. So this book was to essentially to try to fill this space, not just for young people, but for any citizen any uh, of any age who needs to be able to look out for his or her own, own interests. When it comes to this country's relationship with the world or any or it does not just for Americans, any country's relationship with the world.
0: So, Richard, last question. Let's assume that you are giving a commencement speech, either at um, the college where Peter's girls go or at the high school where my daughter is not graduating. Aside from reading your book, what is one piece of advice you would give in this context to the kids and parents around the country and around the world?
2: I would say to learn some history. You know, Harry Truman once said, there's nothing new except for the history you don't know. Uh, So I'm a great believer that uh, we always benefit. It gives you context. I'd also say make a habit to start paying attention. It could be through reading a newspaper or listening to certain podcasts or going to certain websites or reading certain magazines or listening to certain radio shows or TV shows. But basically, it's in your self-interest to get prepared for the world that you're going to come of age in. And I would say devote, as a parent, you ought to try to uh, make sure that your your child devotes a certain percentage of his or her time to doing it. Now, coming back to what you asked, Mooney, we call it commencement. We don't call it finishment. We don't call it completion. We call it commencement. They are going out to commence, to begin the working part of their lives, essentially. And that's going to last at least a half century. And my argument is get this foundation and then you're going to need to top it off. Think of education not as filling up a tank of gas that's going to last you for the next 50 years, but rather you're going to have to top it off maybe 10 or 20 times in the course of those 50 years to stay up, stay up to speed. So reimagine what education is going to mean and make sure a percentage of it includes something about the world you're going to be living in.
0: Great advice. Great interview. Thank you, Richard Haas, for joining us again in Altamar.
2: Thanks for having me again.
1: Well, Mooney, uh, I, I'm going to take Richard's advice and go get a cocktail because if I started out like a <laughs> pessimist, I'm uh, I'm uh, truly in a place where I'm downright depressed. I mean, in addition to adding to all the challenges that we face, I think his very interesting take on Europe and very depressing take on Europe, I think, is right on and. The only thing I point to that has some hope is sort of the need for new institutions to take on issues and that it may be easier to build new institutions uh, than to reform old ones. So it was an interesting interview that's going to need digestion, but it, it really covered a lot.
0: Well, I'm, I'm struck by two things. One is the fact that there's a whole new generation of people that have lived through this crisis in the early stages of their life. And they are going to have to understand that things need to be done differently. And the second thing is kind of the little weak signals of collaboration that are going around around the world, not only in the medical community, but among NGOs and other institutions that are doing a lot better job than some of the governments out there.
1: Well, you and I both have graduating seniors, my seniors graduating from college and your seniors graduating from high school. And I certainly hope that good advice, I mean, at least in, my, in the case of my senior, she is graduating in history, so she's taken Richard's advice. But I, I, think, I think it's so important to understand where the world is in order to affect and influence where the world is going to go. And with that, we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on Altamar.